Maggie O'Farrell's novel, Hamnet, offered a fictionalized backstory for the play Hamlet. Now, Hamnet itself has been turned into a play. You got all that? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. In her career as an actor, Lolita Chakrabarty has appeared in numerous TV and film roles, including the long-running British police show, The Bill. Her stage credits include playing Gertrude in a 2017 production of Hamlet, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Chakrabarty is also the author of several plays, including the award-winning Red Velvet, about the 19th century Shakespearean actor Ira Aldrich. Chakrabarty has recently made a name as an adapter, having brought the novels Invisible Cities and Life of Pi to the stage. Now, Chakrabarty has adapted Maggie O'Farrell's 2020 novel, Hamnet. The novel and Chakrabarty's play tell the story of a young Agnes Hathaway and William Shakespeare as they fall in love and start a family. Anne, Anne, Anne. That's not my name. You said it was. You weren't listening. Tell me again. I'm Agnes. Agnes Hathaway. And the psychological damage caused by the death of their son, Hamnet. The play stars Madeline Mantock as Agnes and Tom Barry as William. It's directed by the Royal Shakespeare Company's acting artistic director, Erica Wyman. Produced by the RSC, Hamnet is currently running at the Swan Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon, ahead of a London transfer later this year. Here's Lolita Chakrabarty in conversation with Barbara Bogave. So after Life of Pi and Invisible Cities, adapting novels, I'm thinking, for the, for the stage is now your real area of expertise, but it's still a really hard thing to do. Uh, has it gotten any easier for you with Hamnet, since it's a story that has a very clear narrative structure and is not magical realism starring a tiger? So interesting you say that, because although it's not magic realism, there's still magic within it. Mm. <laughs> there's not a tiger, though. There's definitely not a tiger. <laughs> Just hogs. Um, and, the narr- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. and the narrative structure of the book is, I mean, one of the things that I've done for the play is I've put it chronologically in order, because the book leaps around from right. the day that Hamnet, well, his sister gets sick, and then Hamnet gets sick, and then it sort of flashes back and back and forth through the history of Agnes and William to the day that Hamlet passes. And then it leaps four years forward into the future to the globe. So the book doesn't travel a linear way, although the magic of it is that you don't realise that. But obviously in the play, I've had to make it a more logical path. And why is that? Because you just can't keep track of those, those jumps on the stage? I guess to a certain degree, that's my choice because I thought, oh, that would make sense to me. To me, I want to know what was the thing that affected everybody beforehand and and, and the accumulative effect of people's actions and their relationships, so the growth of the relationships. That's what I find interesting on stage. But also, in my view, to be leaping back and forth is a whole theatrical version of it that would require a certain kind of storytelling. And I wanted to be a little bit more linear, I suppose. So maybe Mm -hmm. it was just my choice. Okay, practical question. How do you literally start uh, an adaptation? Do you you go in there, read the book with a highlighter pen and sticky notes? 
<laughs> with some of them, yeah. With Life of Pi, that's exactly what I did. You know, and I've been brought up never writing a book. It's a sacred thing. Um, and the only time I do write in a book is is, is now when I, I'm adapting them. So yeah, for Life of Pi, I absolutely took a highlighter pen and highlighted all the interesting bits and then, and then put it into different categories. With Hamnet, it was different. I asked Maggie for a PDF. And I, I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do with the story. I loved the story, but I wasn't sure how I was going to tell it. But I thought the first the, the first thing to do was to put it chronologically so that I could see where it began, what it was about, where it ended. And it became clear to me that it was about one of the things, it's about many things, was about creativity and what makes, how do you create something, a person, a piece of work, what goes into that person? And actually that accumulation of events is what really fed into that storytelling. So I did start chronologically. That was the first step. Oh, now that's fascinating because it anticipates the question I I wanted to ask you next, which is that we've talked a lot on this podcast about just what a drubbing Shakespeare's wife, Anne Hathaway, has gotten throughout history, How, how every generation seems to have used her as this repository for anxieties or controversies of the day or preoccupations or neuroses. And then you read Hamnet, and and Maggie O'Farrell has so completely reimagined this woman as a skilled healer, and she has dignity and strength, all her own. Mm. So, so what were your first impressions of Anne or or Anya's, as she's called in in the book, and and how have you gone ad- about adapting her arc for the play? I suppose the history of how she's been treated, I didn't, I wasn't that aware of, actually. But I was aware that I didn't know much about her, that all I knew was that she was left the second best bed. That was the only thing I actually knew about her. And then Maggie filled me in about this drubbing, as you say, about how everyone kind of blames her for everything and that she was just this older woman who dragged him down and he he left them all in Stratford and, you know, and, and, and she couldn't read, that she was illiterate. And so how could the greatest writer in the English language be with someone who couldn't read? Uh, and this version of her that is given so that Shakespeare is elevated into the place that he is has been what we buy, right? When, when, when you read these books as kids or as young people and then that becomes part of the sort of the, the landscape, you just go, oh, right, Anne Hathaway, yeah, unimportant. Right. The, the version um, written what, mainly by men throughout the ages. Yes, oh, completely, and a certain demographic of man and a certain type of educated man as well who was telling that story. And so Maggie's version, when I read it, made complete sense because, well, I mean, on the basic fact that they had a child who died four years before he wrote this amazing play and the child and the play share the same name. And to not think that that would have influence on a writer is crazy, actually. (laughs) Um, uh, It it just seems like a no-brainer. And so the link of that, you just go, oh, okay, so this is obviously a man who loves his children because that's what men do, what fathers do. So let's go back into the family and and look at Agnes. And Maggie's sort of 
portrayal of Agnes as this person whose mother came out of the forest and uh, who was this slightly mysterious, not magical, but other person who then settled in Stratford and had these children and, and passed, but left her foresight and instinctive nature and medicinal abilities to her daughter. Um, you just go, oh, yeah, that makes complete, well, not sense. That's a possibility because we don't know, do we? But she could have been that. Absolutely, she could have been that. But I think it. what Maggie's book does is it is it gives us the possibility of an Agnes who was a strong, interesting, forthright centre of a household who, uh, you know, Shakespeare would have relied on her to look after the children because that was a woman's job and he could then come home and, and rest and enjoy his life in between his work in London. So I think it's very believable. It's yeah. a good version. It's a good and it's it's a wonderful inversion. And when I talked to Maggie O'Farrell on, on the podcast, she said she'd read Germaine Greer's book, Shakespeare's Wife, and she was really taken with Greer asking the question that no one else asked, which was not why did Shakespeare marry this old farmer's daughter, but why did she marry this 18-year-old penniless nobody? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. With no skill or trade or anything. You know, I mean, that's obviously from Maggie's book, isn't it? That he, uh, but he did leave school. He did leave school early Mm -hmm. and he didn't go to university. I think that is a fact. So yeah, absolutely. What, what would you see in a 17 year old youth? Yeah. He's just some guy. And in the book, uh, Anya's insight into Will happens in this interesting moment in which she does a kind of Vulcan pincer grip on, on Shakespeare's <laughs> yes. hands. I mean, she does it on other people too, but but on Shakespeare. And it's her superpower or her, her witchy power or, or um, something. It's how she reads people's souls. Do you always take what doesn't belong to you? It's just an apple. But it's not yours. What's your name? Why won't you tell me? Because my name is mine to gift, and not yours to take. Then give it to me. If I tell you, will you let go? I will. How do I know you'll keep your promise? I'm a man of my word. So she does that and sees into his soul, and she sees, um, in the book, it, it, the, the quote is, spaces and vacancies, dense patches, underground caves inside of Shakespeare. And it's this pivotal scene so how do you go about bringing something like that alive <laughs> on stage? I imagine, what, soundscape video projections? Yes, yeah, soundscape is definitely part of it. I mean, that second sight element of Agnes has been really interesting because how do you put that on stage? And, it, and when you say Vulcan-like, that's really interesting because, yeah, you think of Spock, don't you, doing his, <laughs> his pincer. And, and on stage, you just go, yeah, right, okay, I know what sort of play I'm in. Um, but how do you do it convincingly? I think as influences for that element of the play, I drew on three different things. Um, I've tried to lace, obviously, the imagery and the sort of characters and some of the language of Shakespeare's plays throughout into the play because that's it's not they're not autobiographical, right, but they give a flavour of the person. So I used the, the, the feeling of the witches in Macbeth and that premonition feeling and the slightly spooky nature of people who predict things. Then I used a friend of mine who was psychic and she... 
She described to me, she, she's passed now, but she described to me when she first realised she was psychic and she woke up in bed when she was a young woman and saw three people from maybe sort of, maybe Tudor times actually, you know, long skirts and bonnets at the end of her bed. And they were just looking at her. And she said she was quite frightened and she didn't know what to do. And then she realised, oh, no, it's okay. They've just come here to tell me something. And I never forgot that. I was like, wow, okay, you wake up in bed and you see you see historical characters at the end of your bed. Right, okay. And actually, I, I knew this friend of mine when she was in her 60s, so much later, and she'd had her gift for a long time, and she would give me you know, predictions of, oh, yeah, you're going to get that job. They've told me, um, you know. And so, so so there was that element as well. And then I also took, uh, I, I, I knew somebody who um, was paranoid schizophrenic and who would talk to people that she thought were there. And she described it when she was on medication and she didn't talk to them anymore, what that felt like. And I thought, well, who's to say those people weren't there? Is that reality or is that illness? I don't know. So I combined those three elements because to me, they feel real and theatrical, obviously, with the witches in different ways. And I used that as a tool to inform what Agnes hears and how she responds to those other elements from the other world. And it is, it's, it's portrayed through soundscape, music, but also script and her relationship with things that aren't there, but maybe voices that we hear. Does that make any sense? That sounded it, like a very long explanation. Oh, to no, a brief that was great. Question. That was great. I okay. love that. Um, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm thinking, though, she's also a falconer. Uh, she, yeah. There's a lot of use of uh, scenes of, of her training and, and working with the falcon. Do you use puppetry in this play, like the puppetry you use in Life of Pi? Uh, back to puppets. Yeah. Is it back to puppets? <laughs> back or, to puppets. Or did you get away finally? How are you dealing you know, with I this think, falcon? I think, well, I think I've, I think I've done my puppets for a little while now, and I'm still okay. doing them. So I thought, right, let me. Let, how do we do this? I thought, no, we went theatrical. I mean, obviously, what do they say? They say um, animals and children don't work right. with them on stage. Um, uh, because not be just because it's difficult. And I thought, no, you want a theatrical answer to that. So again, acting and uh, association to the kestrel, and then sound and light. Was that a falcon? No. I saw it. Then you're mistaken. I was watching you. I saw a falcon. If you tell Joan, I'll be punished. I couldn't leave her when she's hungry. Did she eat? She did. She flew into the wind, eyes fixed on the ground, then dropped down. She ate two mice and a vole. A banquet. Who are you? The Latin tutor. Another thing I was thinking about, one one big stylistic shift in the novel... Um, it might pose an interesting challenge to you as an adapter. Uh, Hamnet's death comes in the middle of the book, and the writing after that point becomes much less fluid and coherent, and it really seems like a series of small sketches. And O'Farrell said she was very conscious about this. She wanted to show the fracturing before and after a death of a child in a family, the shattering of it. So what were your thoughts about that? I guess in doing it, it's a slight, it's a slightly different thing on stage because obviously you have the language, but it's in relationship to each other, and so actually it's it's how you speak to each other and what happens between people rather than the language on the page, and in in 
going from a chronological order whereby you meet Agnes and William beforehand and you get to know them and see them fall in love and how they make Hamnet and that when Hamnet and Judith and Susanna are there, they are this complete family. So we we grow with the difficulties of the couple in their families, their personal families. They come from complicated families, both of them, and they find each other and find respite with each other and, uh, and a certain freedom. Do you blow me out like a candle? I cool your heat. Why do you come every week? To teach the boys. Stay at the house then and do your job. You're the only reason I'm here. I hate it here. If I choose you... I'll choose you. But I have nothing to give. Just myself. That is more than enough. Uh, and then they grow as a family. So there's a there's a building of joy and a bit of struggle and, uh, I suppose, identity, finding out who they are as, as a unit. And then when Hamnet dies, then we can see it break. And so it, it's quite... It's interesting being in rehearsals and watching it, actually, watching it evolve and seeing that... Just the joy, the simplicities, you know, life is complicated even when it's happy, right? And often we take it for granted when some, I don't know, a a younger sibling's moaning and the older sibling's cross and the parents are a bit like harassed and like, oh, just behave, you know, and, and all of that stuff. We think, oh, I've had a really difficult day. But then when one of those people leaves, it leaves an, a huge and gaping hole and all those tiny irritations seem delightful. Um, and so I guess it's in that that you see it on stage. It's how every that person is missing and the joy has gone and everyone is trying to reframe their relationships. So Susanna and Judith to their mother, who is, you know, having been somebody who sees, uh, not necessarily sees premonitions, but hears and understands otherworldliness. Other now she's trapped in her head and can't, can't, shift the grief and so she's stuck in a different kind of set of voices and that separates her from William who's run away to London and is making theatre and then the children are left the two daughters are left and find it heartbreaking when Judith says you know that when her husband loses a wife he's a widow and uh, you know this sort of idea of when children lose their parents they're orphans but what am I called if I've lost a twin and you just go Yeah, actually, that's a really interesting question. So it's in relationship. You see this messy, vibrant building of a life before Hamlet passes. And then you see this fractured, distressed, everybody processing their grief in a different way because communication is so hard, because the loss is so personal. And then at the end, which is what's so beautiful about Maggie's book and also true of life, that out of those kind of terrible, terrible things, there are new shoots because you have to find you have to find your way and you have to reinvent. And if you're lucky, you find each other. And they do. You know, on a very different tack, I'm so glad we're not talking about William Shakespeare. (laughs) 
for, for once. <laughs> I mean, everyone who portrays Shakespeare, uh, either in writing or on the stage, or, or uh, comes on this podcast and talks about this big hurdle they have to get over. You know, oh my God, I'm pre- presuming to have a take on William Shakespeare or to put words in his in his mouth. And uh, in fact, Maggie O'Farrell said. That's why she never names him as Shakespeare in her book, yeah. Hamnet. For, yeah. for most of the book, she said he's just some guy who's in love with an older woman. What a relief. So was that something you had to grapple with, too, And putting words in Shakespeare's mouth? Did you feel any of that trepidation, or, or is this such a different story that, that it's not an issue? It's funny. So I I did feel trepidation in that he's this iconic, extremely studied, loved, lionized character that everyone has a take on, as you say. But I needed him in the play. I absolutely needed him because without him, how does she make Hamnet? You know, and uh, and I felt in in a physical sense, as in being present in a theatre, I wanted him there in some way. So he's very present in the play. But actually writing him, I found really pleasing because it's funny, when you walk around Stratford and you go in and out of the buildings that he would have lived in or gone to school in or walked down the streets of or maybe had a pint in, you think, oh, God, this was just a man. This was just a a man who was a boy in a school who was, you know, taken out of school early for whatever reason, but was obviously brilliant and obviously hungry and a bright light and a genius beyond his years. That's who he grew into. But he did just start out as any of us. And that's what's so lovely, actually, about Maggie's story is it makes them people. And And so I, I just wrote a person. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I do like your Shakespeare. I like this one passage, particularly where he's talking to Richard Burbage, and he's saying, I, I promise you I'm, I'm close to, to, to getting the play. T- tomorrow or the next day I'll feel my way like, like a blind man on a tightrope, not knowing how far I may drop. And, and then I'm like a galloping stallion. He just, he just this series of metaphors kind of pours out of him as he's just talking about his complaining about writing, actually. <laughs> my hand aches, my eyes blur, my insides are out. Yeah, well, I thought it would be interesting to hear what writing is from a writer, mm. you know, from Shakespeare, and obviously me behind him being the writer. Right, um, do, do your hands it, ache it, and your does your mind, your uh, eyes blur? I, and your... <laughs> My eyes definitely blur. I guess now I'm typing rather than writing with a pen. But, you know, sometimes I do write with a pen when I just want to have free flow and go old school. And, yeah, your hand does ache because you just want to write down what you're thinking and you haven't, you can't quite keep up with your thoughts. And you do, you have to write beyond yourself in order to get where you're going. You have to fill it with emotion of your experience and life and imagination it is. It's a very strange alchemy writing, and it, it costs in a way that is is different. So I thought it would be interesting to hear hear that from Shakespeare. And I'm an actor by trade as well, so I'm an actor as well, and I I write very much from a from an acting point of view. So I thought, well, 
if you're an actor and you're writing for your fellow actors and they're waiting there for the play and, you know, I mean, it's very, being an actor is very collegiate. It's a fantastic room to be in and it's free and it's, you know, you're playing with all sorts of dramatic stories and scales of emotion and it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a difficult life in terms of finance, but it's also a very fun life in terms of the kind of work that you do. So I wanted to combine that joy of the freedom that William had, having grown up in this Stratford home where his dad was pretty bullish and the prospects were pretty small. And suddenly he goes to London and finds the theatre. So I wanted to catch that freedom that he he gains a little bit like a falcon flying. Ah. Well, switching gears again, you've written another Shakespeare-related play, Red Velvet, uh, about the amazing Mm. 19th-century Black actor Ira Aldridge, who we've also talked a lot about on this podcast. How did you first hear about Aldridge? So in 1998, my husband, Adrian Lester, who's an actor as well, he did a reading about Ira Aldridge at a small theatre festival in Brighton. And he came home and he said, have you heard about this guy, Ira Aldridge? And of course, neither of us had heard of him. I had just started writing then, so I'd been writing for two or three years. And I thought, no, I've never heard of him. He sounds amazing. This a black American actor in 1824, 1833, playing Othello at Covent Garden. What? So I started to research it because I was looking for something to to do as a, as a writer. I thought, I, I need a subject. And as I followed the trail, this was pre-internet. So the internet was pretty basic then. So I was going to libraries and I was faxing libraries across the world, including the Folger, New York Public Library and collection in Bristol. And I went to the British Library, all sorts of places in order to get some, some sort of, I don't know, a lead because it was quite hard. Now you can Google, I want a book on this person and you find out the title. But then if the bookshop didn't stock it, there was no way of finding it. So I, I followed this trail and I spent the next three years finding out who Ira Aldridge was. Yeah, and he, it's a fascinating story. And it's so heartbreaking that he got his big break And then Mm. the very racist press of his day just savaged him. And and you quote some of the newspaper reviews in the in the play, I Mm. think. What what, remind Mm. us, what did they hone in on? Well, I I mean, you know, for dramatic purposes, I selected the ones that would serve my story. So I used the ones that criticised... I mean, some of them did actually compliment him and his performance and his voice and his stature. But then they would say things like he was not bad looking for an African, you know, things like that. And then they would be more um, specific about his race and his colour and his look and his ability to speak English. I mean, some of the, I mean, a lot of the reviews he got across Britain, not in London, across Britain were really excellent. But it was the London press that were particularly uh, brutal. I think, because they had other agendas to follow. And they're really shocking. I mean, when you hear them now, they're really, really shocking. Yeah. Yeah. But but as you say, people did recognize he was doing something different and something very exciting with acting. And this was a time when when the teapot style of acting was prevalent. The actor just stands there like a teapot and declaims their lines, like more recital than acting. 
Yeah, absolutely. Big, big um, gestures to cover the fact that the lighting was terrible. The auditorium was enormous. Uh, People were probably chatting through it all. So big, wide bodies and arms and wide stance and out front and centre and declaiming. Yeah. But, and all sorts of habits, terrible habits I think people had. I think can't remember now. My research is a bit old now, but there was one actor who who paused uh, an awful lot, so it took <laughs> ages for him to get his lines out. And I, I remember it was very important that the leading actor was centre stage and they just stayed centre stage and everyone else acted around them because there were no directors, of course. The lead actor was the one who ran the show. Oh, it's so great So they put themselves centre. But so yeah. <laughs> what do you think made Aldridge so great? And was he a great actor? Yeah, I think he absolutely was. I think the reviews that I read around the provinces in Britain, some of the ones in London, actually, and the European ones. I mean, the European ones where the Russian reviews are, because they report in such detail, their admiration for acting is so detailed that you could probably recreate his performance from some of the descriptions they give. Um, and you just don't get reviews like that. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, I can't quote it, but one of the, I think somebody wrote in their diary that to watch him acting Othello was, to, to try to describe him playing Othello was trying to take water from the sea with a spoon. <sighs> and I I just thought, yeah, you don't get reviews like, <laughs> like that if you're a bit so-so, you know, a bit <laughs> mediocre. I mean, some of it's funny because some of it I think there's racial bias in the back of it. So there was one review that said, you know, that that people were terrified for his Desdemona because he was so ferocious and so fierce. They feared that he'd actually killed the actress. The violent black um, and so man. Behind, yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's what's behind it. But what I really liked was there was another, I don't know, it was an account of Ira replying to someone who said, oh my gosh, it was, I was so nervous for your Desdemona. I thought you killed her. And he said, oh no, he said, out of three, I've only killed a couple (laughs) and I really liked that so there's a kind of there's a humor and a charm and a playing the game in Ira's responses uh, diary references people's comments about what he was like but I think he was a smart man who played the game and was really good at what he did there's photographs of or I don't know if they're daguerreotypes or what they were called but of him playing King Lear and Othello and and the King Lear one particularly you know I mean it is very old school he's facing up to the light with his hands up to the sky uh, ranting he's got his at white the beard yeah ranting yeah. at the yeah. god yeah yeah, ranting at the gods with his white beard and white hair. But it's, it, I mean, even just looking at it makes me excited to see what he might have played. So this was the first play you wrote. What made you yes. think, uh, I am an actor, but hey, I can do this playwriting thing? <laughs> well, it took me a really long time to get that play on. So I started writing probably, I don't know, nine, ten years before that. And I did it very quietly. I did it, I wasn't sure whether I could do it. So I started writing short stories and I wrote a terrible first novel. And then I wrote a a play, a screenplay. Wait, you Uh, just started writing out of of nowhere? Yeah, I did. Because I got bored between my acting jobs. Oh, so... I did. So I was working... Was writing the first thing you tried to do between acting gigs? 
to alleviate No, I did, I did a, a term of pottery classes and I couldn't make a pot <laughs> to save my life. And then I did a term of English romantic poetry classes, which I thought was really fascinating, but wasn't going to go anywhere unless I wanted to do a degree or something, which I couldn't commit to at the time. Um, I think pottery I I classes something... have created more writers than, than, <laughs> than graduate programs. <laughs> yeah, I'm not good at that. Let me find something else. Um, so, yeah, so I started writing and I liked it. So that's why I stuck at it. Huh. Well, I read somewhere that your husband, Adrian Lester, reads everything you write and gives you notes. So just how brutal he used to. is he? Oh, he yeah. used to. Uh-huh. He used he used to. I think now that I've become so busy, it's not possible really to keep up with everything that I'm doing. But yeah, in the early days, he definitely used to. Uh, yeah, we had to negotiate the notes. Uh-huh. <laughs> As you can imagine, I, I had to sort of, uh, you know, it was brilliant because his eye is really good. But I did have to say, listen, you have to say the nice things first. You can't just go, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, this doesn't work. You have to go, oh, it's really good. And I really like this bit and I really like that bit but that's right there's an etiquette um, to this um can you tell any of his notes on Hamnet or does he not uh has he not given no he doesn't I, I, I actually don't need him to do that anymore so I'm kind of in a place now where I'm better at it uh I know more what I'm doing you've outgrown Adrian Lester (laughs) <laughs> never, <laughs> never. But I'm, but I'm working with all these amazing companies. I'm commissioned now, so I'm not yeah. writing on my own trying to get the gig. I've right. got the gig and there's all these people in the buildings who are completely sort of on side and trained and know what I'm doing. So I have other help now. I do have one more question. I was thinking whether working on a play about Shakespeare makes you wish you were acting in one of his plays. Oh, always. Gosh, yeah, I I played Gertrude in Hamlet about five years ago. It was when I started writing Life of Pi, actually. I remember I would write Life of Pi in the morning and I would go and do the show in the evening. And um, it was my first mum. So I thought, oh, I've got to that age where I can play mums now. How marvellous. I was a bit in between before. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just beautiful. I'd just listen I'd obviously be in it, but I'd listen. And it's such, I mean, but it's so hard to get right as well. So it's just the total pinnacle of acting and you never get it right. Even on the last night, you're going, oh, I didn't get that bit right. So it's a fantastic exercise, gym exercise of, to practice your acting with, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I use bits of uh, his plays in, in Hamlet, uh, small bits, you know, because otherwise it's lazy, right, if I'm using lots of his words and not my own. But they are, there's just so much to choose from and it's so deep and clear and wide and expressive and of its time and of now. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous stuff. Well, I wish you so much, so wonderful audiences for Life of Pi on Broadway, by the way. And and again, so much good to happen with your run in the West End. And I wish you health and happiness. And thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. That was Lolita Chakrabarty talking to Barbara Bogave. Hamnet runs at the Royal Shakespeare Company's newly restored Swan Theatre until June 17th and will open at London's Garrick Theatre on September 30th. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. 
Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Melvin Rickerby at Stratford and Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice so that we can make sure others find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library, home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection. The Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. <laughs>